Hey there, this is Dave Canise. I'm the creator and host of the Agents of Innovation podcast. I've spent the past 30 years deep inside the global innovation economy at the intersection of brand strategy, design, management consulting, venture capital, product, marketing, and executive recruiting, working with visionaries at hundreds of the world's great companies and the startups on the way to becoming tomorrow's most exciting ones. I've coached hundreds of leaders through job searches, personal branding, and the reinvention of their careers. One of the biggest things I've learned on my journey products, brands, services, experiences, and technologies that become world-changing, life-changing, and industry-changing only make it from idea to reality because of agents of change. I call them agents of innovation. This podcast was created to introduce you to them. We'll explore their stories and their superpowers, and I hope they inspire you. Thanks for listening. And please reach out if I can help you. You can get me anytime at dk at agentsofinnovation.dk. That's dk at agentsofinnovation.dk. On to the show. I could not be more honored and excited to welcome my dear friend Charles Johnson to the Agents of Innovation podcast. Charlie and I met over 30 years ago at Adidas in Germany during a very formative time in our careers and in the history of one of the world's most innovative brands. Charlie's gone on to a long and successful career with brands like Adidas, Hyde, Avia, also started his own firm, Sports Creative, where he started the brand Black Fives. He was at Crocs and ultimately spent the last 10 years at Puma as the global director of innovation and footwear design. Charlie's superpower is empathy, and it's fueled his success throughout his career as a designer, an innovator, a business person, and an all-around amazing human being. I experienced his empathy from the moment we first met. And to set the scene for you, in 1990, we were both at Adidas in Germany. Adidas, the original brand that defined sport, was dead. It was bankrupt, but there was a little spark still there. And the industry's most visionary people, the team behind Nike's great success over the past decade, were brought in to bring the brand back to life. I was a 22-year-old who couldn't know anything other than I couldn't believe I was part of this. I was wandering around the office, was in the design studio. I didn't even know what design was, let alone it was a career. And I met Charlie. When he saw we were both Americans and that I was clueless, he helped introduce me to design and explain it to me. And that empathy has been something that I've seen from him continuously over the last 30 years. Let's meet Charles Johnson. Charles Johnson, welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast. Thank you, David. I'm really happy to be here. It's been a while since we've talked. We've had sort of some regular interactions over the many years um, that we've known one another, but this is the first in a little in a short while. It's almost been 31 years. You know that? Holy moly. You know, incredible. Yeah, there's a lot incredible. There's a lot of great things to talk about from back then, that's for sure. I'd love to know how did you get into design to begin with? Well, first of all, before I do, you know, I when I landed at at Adidas in Hetzo, I was the first trained product designer with the brand. The people who were creating products were more artisans. And um, so I got there and I thought, you know, I was, you know, there were a lot of folks who came over for the mission for revitalizing Adidas and under the leadership of Rob Strasser and Peter Moore. But you were you were there before any of us. <laughs> so you pioneered like foreigner American in, at a German company immersed in the culture 
And so, you know, you kind of paved the way for, for those of us who arrived um, there for that mission. But um, when I talk about sort of where I came from, I was born into a multicultural, multilingual family. And so the things that I saw in my immediate environment was, um, was very different than the average American. And so that gave me a certain, a certain ability to see things differently, a certain empathy. And that was really the start, I guess, of what made me a designer, what brought me into that space. Just one of the things. So for the listeners, since you can't see all that well on a podcast, Charlie's black and um, grew up um, with um, a large family outside of Boston, originally in a very, very, very white town, right? Concord. That's the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Which was, a, you know, I had a, a cherished um, childhood. I really loved my experience growing up there. Um, and, but it was, and also, you know, by the time we got to Concord, so um, my mother is German, my father is American. They met in Germany. They stayed, um, my father stayed in Europe, in, in Austria, actually, to study where my four siblings were born. And then he got a teaching position in Zaire, uh, where I was born. And roughly a year and a half later, we moved to the U.S. So our background, we had quite a bit of culture in our background by the time we landed um, in Massachusetts and in Concord. My father, you know, knew enough to get us into a good environment with good schools. Um, and we benefited from that, of course. Um, but yeah, it was you know, it was what we had experienced and what I had experienced by the time we got to Concord was a lot more than what most people had experienced. Um, so it was a, but I really enjoyed, you know, growing up there was, um, it was really nice experience, you know, to grow up in that, in that environment. So you were always somewhat different from everyone else that was in your school and in your neighborhood, right? And how's that informed the way you see the world and the way you look at design and innovation? Well, you know, we could, of course, we could talk for hours about my experience with, with racism in, in, in uh, the U.S. and growing up. And I don't want to under, I don't want to overscore it, but it, for, it certainly had a place in my life, meaning I was an, an outsider pretty much always, you know? Um, and the way I think about it is like, I was born outside the box, right? So people strive to get to a place where you think outside the box. Well, I was born outside the box. So that again, sort of set the stage for me. Um, and it wasn't that, you know, when I say it was, it was a pleasant experience, it was, but there was, you know, racism, there were averse, you know, situations that I grew up with, but I processed that and I managed to, to, um, turn that into, uh, a, a strength, which is that um, I can I could empathize whenever it came to looking at things differently to solve problems. I drew on that the fact that well I've been on the outside and I've had to look at things differently and think of things differently. So it was kind of an easy transition for me, you know, to be in, in the design space. Um, yeah. And how did you discover design as a career? How did you find yourself on that path from growing up as a little kid in Concord, playing, you know, soccer, lacrosse, basketball, ski team, all those kind of things? How did you get on the career to discover design is the place for me? It, you know, it was it was kind of an accident. Um, I was fortunate enough when 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 I was in school, 
art was still taught, for example, in school. You know, I don't think that's so much taught everywhere, or that's not the case everywhere. Um, so I had a sensibility and, a, and an outlet for creativity, but, but at the same time, it was never presented to me as a career, architecture, design, um, any of that. Um, it was an accident when I went to my brother who studied at Carnegie Mellon and I went to visit him um, and in his neighborhood was a gallery that had the senior degree program for the uh, design class, for the senior design class at Carnegie Mellon. And I walked into the gallery really just off the street and looked around and I was, the, the things that I saw really piqued my interest. And th it was then that I decided this is what I want to do. And it so happened that Carnegie Mellon has one of the you know, best design programs uh, in the country, if not the world. And so that's what kind of got me on that path once I understood what design was, um, which was I was a late bloomer, so to speak. You know, there were kids who throughout high school were taking art classes and doing all kinds of, you know, creative exploits. I wasn't one of them. Um, so I had some catching up to do. But once I did, once I was exposed to that, that was it. You know, the idea of creating things and solving problems and using my hands and um, was something I'd always done kind of as a kid, you know, um, just in my garage or, you know, I always wanted to make stuff. And I was always interested in, from a sports perspective, the stuff, the equipment, the gear that you used for sports. And so, um, yeah. That's I was the same way. I think all of us that end up in the industry were kids that used to wander around and go into every sporting goods store and sneaker store and pick up the shoes and stare at them and remember them forever and pick up tennis rackets and skis and play around and look for catalogs and all that. And it's so fun to see kind of sneakerheads now and how they're really into that. Um, with Carnegie Mellon, one of the things that always amazes me with the people I know that have come out of there is the um, not only the design skills that they have sharpened there and learned there, but also the technology base that they're able to build there because of CMU's kind of base in technology and innovation. Yep. Yeah, I mean, that was a, a really, one of the things that I really was outstanding um, in my experience at Carnegie Mellon and is that it's excellence in so many fields, whether you're talking computer science or math or robotics, um, or engineering, um, physics on that side. And then there's drama and art um, and the business school. All of these, all of these, uh, and design, of course, and all of these um, universities and, or colleges within the university at the top of their game. And so we were exposed to so many, not just exposed to, but exposed to excellence in all of these fields. And so there was a sort of cross-pollinization that occurred through, you know, just through osmosis. Some of the things were functional. I mean, we actually had, you know, um, some cross projects that were, for example, the design school working with the Robotics Institute to solve a problem around robotics and healthcare, you know. Um, that was one thing that we went through or experience that we had to, now it's, now though it's very much, I'm pretty sure that that was kind of pioneering at the time where these cross-pollinizing between specialties or, or studies. Now, you, you know, everyone wants to be a designer. So like, you know, guys who are studying physics can take a course in design and 
guys who are studying, you know, computer science can do the same, and which is okay. It's fine, right? This sort of broad-based ability is is valuable out there. Um, but that was really what I, I think of Carnegie Mellon as an excellence factory, and I benefited from that because, like, at, at you know, in every course of study, um, being exposed to excellence um, helped make me the designer that I am, and for sure, the level of technology. I remember on campus watching this this like TV cart, if you can imagine, with wheel four wheels and a monitor and a keyboard, would would ambulate around campus. That was like the beginning of driverless, you know, vehicles, right? Now you go to campus and there are, you know, Jeeps and <laughs> that have all the, you know, graphics and cameras and, you know, Ubers there. Um, so really being at the, at the beginning of a lot of that technology um, influenced me a lot as well. What was on the screen of this roving? Uh, I don't know. I never got autonomous TV. There were, there were lines of code. I'm sure of it. <laughs> I mean, you know, like amazing. There was amazing. a guy maybe standing around programming it and then stepping away for a while. I mean, I never got close close to it really. Um, but yeah, it was you know, it was really to be right there in that amongst that technology definitely influenced me. And so by the time I, you know, left design school, it was design sports and technology that kind of was like in my design DNA or in my awareness. Um, so it wasn't just exposure. You had immersion, you know, in all these fields and you're able to not only connect the dots, but you're able to see things at a, at a level that, you know, probably was incomparable as you talked about this excellence factory idea. Well, and here's the thing, what's, what's it, I was exposed and it doesn't mean that I, um, you know, before I actually got to school, I went to an engineering program, a summer high school engineering program at Carnegie Mellon, um, where I studied physics, calculus. Um, none of them I did well, right? But, um, and, and it actually helped, you know, that was part of the answer why I became a designer because I knew what I, I learned what I wasn't going to be, right? Um, and, you know, then fast forward to, to Carnegie Mellon when I was a student and I mentioned, you know, the Mac was launched, so personal computing. And at the time, Carnegie Mellon or the design school knew that computers would be would play an important role in design, but there were no tools yet. So what did they do? They had us study Pascal, right? Um, so it was, you know, I learned how to program code as best as I could to pass the test. Um, but I never, you know, wrote a line of code after that. And the point of that is that um, I was immersed, learned uh, the principles of much of that technology. Um, and so I could relate to it. No, did I become a computer science major? No, but to this day, I can relate to people who are writing code for an app I'm developing um, or understanding the importance of how you develop um, software, for example, an app and an experience and all that it takes and how you test it and validate it and make sure that, you know, um, you, you know, you're, you're doing, you're taking the right steps. Uh, and that is due to that exposure that I had to people of that caliber, if that makes sense. It does. So going back to empathy again, what that means to, you know, in, in real terms might mean, you know, when you look at a programmer, when you look at an engineer, when you look at, you know, other skilled professions like that, you're not looking at them saying, I know how to do your job. You're looking at them and saying, I understand how you see the world and I can bring that to bear in what we're building together, which is an amazing 
piece of teamwork. Yeah, I understand what's important to you and that what you do, you know, connected to the, what the next person has to do, what she's got to, you know, manage and develop. And then, you know, how that relates to the next, you know, uh, um, stakeholder or, or team member. It's really that understanding what's important, not being able to do it, not out, you know, um, outsmarting these or being the smartest guy in the room. And then, you know, that's another really important thing or, or let's say something that I value in what I do is that bringing out the best in people. It sounds cliche, but really it's enabling, find, identifying people and what they can do and then allowing them to, to actually do the best work that they can do towards a vision, right? So, you know, setting the tone, setting the direction, the strategy. Of course, I'm, you know, I want to channel people to that, but really allowing them to do their best work and the discoveries along the way, right? I'm a smart guy, but I don't know everything. And, and that's why, you know, bringing other folks in and allowing them to do what they can do uh, towards the vision um, is, is essential, really. That's a massive skill. I, one thing I've noticed in probably the best leaders um, is a lack of ego, if you will, um, or, you know, a security and confidence, but not an in-your-face arrogance. Right. And I think, again, that goes back to empathy and understanding and um, seeing things through the eyes of others. Mm-hmm. Is empathy something that you think can be taught or is it natural? I think it can be taught. Um, you know, a knack is good to have. And um, it's one of the things that that I believe or drew me also into design. I think design ought to be a selfless pursuit. I, it, you know, it's solving problems. Um, it's not about me or the thing, you know, my name being attached to something. And so I believe it, it should be a selfless pursuit. Um, and if that's true, then uh, obviously empathy plays a role, right? I might be designing some, something for another person's experience or another community's experience or whatever it is. Um, a knack for that, you know, I've just got through telling you that sort of I'm that way by nature. At the same time, um, I also believe that today, and I'm kind of reversing some of my thinking because I used to say like, you know, everyone wants to be a designer, but like, no, not everybody can be, right? Um, but in a certain way today, I believe um, people do have the ability, everybody has the ability to design because the beginning of design is empathy, is you know, putting yourself in another space. And your ability to do that can help you solve problems of all kinds, right? So, um, and it's sometimes people have to just stop and do that, or, you know, organizations have to build that in um, or hire it, right, um, to, to bring in different perspectives. But I do believe it can be taught. Yes, I do. All right. So you started your design career at Carnegie Mellon, uh, but how'd you get your first job? One of the hardest things to do coming out of school is actually get the first job. And um, how did you manage to get started? You know, it was pretty uh, straightforward back then. You got out of school, you you toted your portfolio somewhere. 
Um, and I did that. This I went before to, there were emails yeah. and websites and portfolio yeah. sites and exactly. Instagram and Snapchat and all that stuff. Absolutely. We barely had fax machines, right? In the, in the dark ages back then. Exactly. You know, uh, yeah, that's how it went. I, I went to, uh, uh, I was a member of the IDSA, the uh, Industrial Designer Society of America, and they had regional conferences, um, you know, at certain times in the year. And at those conferences, they had portfolio reviews. So I went to the New York City uh, chapter um, conference and showed my portfolio to my future boss, who was design director at a company called Hyde Athletic, uh, which was based in Massachusetts. And for those you know, for those runners in the world, um, Saucony Running Shoes was their, uh, a brand that they owned, as well as Spot Built. Um, football cleats and such, basketball shoes, and yeah, he, you know, he he liked what he what he uh, my portfolio. He offered me a job. I didn't really know a hundred percent what it was. I just knew it was a sports, you know, they did sports products, um, and it was design. And but the focus pretty early on became footwear. So that's how it started. So where was the office? Where did you work? In Peabody. I think. Is that right? Outside of Massachusetts outside of Boston. Yeah. It was like a 30, 45 commute, minute commute from Concord where I lived because I, after college, I moved back home <laughs> for a while um, and commuted there, a North Peabody or Peabody. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was an incredible experience, you know, for uh, those of you who do or I don't know, don't know about the industry, um, but New England was a shoe, one of the shoemaking centers in the US and shoes were actually still being made uh, up in Bangor, Maine. Hyde had, had factories up in Bangor. I think that was right. Um, now, of course, everything is made overseas. But because shoes were still made uh, in the US and, you know, there was a, a pattern room and a sample room at Hyde. And so I learned, you know, I, I, I learned again. Um, I didn't learn how to cut patterns, but I learned how the importance of pattern cutting and efficiency for creating new products seeing them sampled and tested and so on. So that was my early, that was my first start. Yeah, one of the things about footwear that was eye-opening to me at the start, and I think for many people is surprising to learn that um, shoes are all handmade, right? The patterns generally, you know, now they can be cut by a machine, but putting them together, sewing them, stitching them, gluing them, bonding them, all those different things are a heavenly, a heavily humanized process. Right. So people are behind it. Yeah, it's the truth. I mean, as much as we attempt to um, to automate, you know, what what we can uh, still, you know, on average, 100 pair of hands, you know, depending on the complexity, but 100 pair of hands touch shoes, uh, you know, throughout the through the production process. So, yeah, whether it's cutting materials, stitching it, you know, cementing, it, putting glue on it. Um, marking it, you know, punching holes in it, um, you know, at the end, examining it. I mean, there's so many steps to producing your average shoe. Um, and then you, you're making different sizes and different colors and so on. So it's a very complex process that, that's difficult to, to automate as much as we try. So. And it's a craft that is, right, particularly in Europe, um, taught 
um, by masters and passed down through generations. And, you know, that probably was a place where you had to, you know, bring your empathy to bear quite a bit when you were working in factories as a, you know, trained college educated designer, uh, working with, you know, um, shoemakers, essentially yeah. artisans and craftspeople. Well, that's how it was. Um, but I, you know, I, I'm here to tell you, like, it's, it's no longer that way. And I'm, and that is in the sports industry where, um, the craft aspect is completely removed from the design side of things. And when I, you know, when I, when I started, um, you know, when I showed up at Herzogenauer as a designer, I worked directly with the pattern cutter. He sat across from me and the shoes that I drew and designed, he cut the patterns and had them made, built the models and so on. Gabi, right? That was the guy's um, name? No, that was um, Raul Lemos. Raul. Oh, yeah. He was... Um, Portuguese, right. French, or French, yeah, Portuguese, but French speaking. You know, he didn't speak English, a tiny bit of German, yet we communicated, right? Um, but today that's not at all the case. And I'm speaking again in sports. I mean, there are shoes being crafted, yes, still, you know, dress shoes and fine, you know, um, fashion shoes, let's say, in Europe. Um, but from a, uh, on the sports side of things, in the companies that I've worked for, um, that is completely removed. Um, so you're not, you don't learn that the importance of that craft designers draw pictures, they send them to the far East, you know, shoes come back and they're tweaked, you know, yes, designers are going to the factory at certain times. Um, but I believe that understanding of, you know, the craft of what it takes to create a shoe, um, something that has to fit the human body, something that has to be comfortable, um, is, is being lost, I have to say. How'd you get from Peabody to Herzog? Um, how'd you get all the way over to Germany to work for Adidas? Well, interesting. So that's um, when I worked at Hyde, a couple of influences. One was a designer who had worked at Nike. Her name was Jules de Tiro. And she would tell me <laughs> stories about, you know, the Nike days and Rob Strasser um, and sort of the, his hero-ness that's a word that was one thing and then another thing that happened was in fact um uh rob strasser and we can talk about who he is maybe some of your listeners know already um the you know the former um head of marketing at, at nike and um, the creative director peter moore who were behind much of or basically yeah behind a lot of nike's early irreverent success including michael uh, or brand jordan they left Nike and took on, they started a company called Sports Incorporated and took on sports brands and created brands and revitalized brands. And one of the brands they revitalized was PF Flyers, which was owned by Hyde Athletic. And I went into the, the boardroom one day and saw this really cool shoe that I, you know, was just built in a way that I hadn't seen before. And I asked, you know, the president, John Fisher, who, uh, you know, where did this come from? Because I knew we didn't do it, right? The design department at, at Hyde. And, you know, weeks later, months later, I don't recall, but um, John came back to me and said, hey, you were asking about this shoe, you know, who, I want you to meet the people who did it. And it was Rob Strasser and Peter Moore. Um, so that was kind of just my first introduction to, to let's say, sports industry greatness. Um, but, you know, put that story aside, I, I was... Um, got pretty good pretty fast at shoe design 
and got noticed and um, got a call from Adidas or Adidas, but of course, um, many people say Adidas, which was in New Jersey. So Adidas America, no, Adidas USA. Adidas USA at that point. Right. right, was in New Jersey and it was more or less a distributorship that did some of their own product. Um, I got hired there, um, worked there for a few years. They were tough times. Uh, they were experiencing some difficulty in business. Um, I got a recruit, a recruiter called me for a job um, at Avia in Portland, which was owned by Reebok at the time. You know, um, long story short, I mean, there were going to be some layoffs at Adidas. A new guy had just come in named Eric Avar. And if anybody knows that name, um, he was a, you know, a young whippersnapper. He came in and I said, look, we have two design positions. You just came in. I just got this recruitment call. I'll go. Right. Um, so anyway, I land, wound up at Avia in Portland. And um, before I had gotten that job, I had had some interaction with Jacques Chassin, who was another mentor of mine who worked at Adidas in Germany. We had some contact. I showed up for meetings and we kind of connected. Um, and he had expressed the interest in maybe having me come to Germany, but he never, he didn't put anything on the table yet. So I went to Avia, Portland, kind of liked Portland, didn't love the job. And then I called up Jacques and said, hey, remember that job you talked about? And, you know, before you know it, I had a job at Adidas in Germany. And that's when, where our story picks up. So. Yeah, to set the stage for the listeners to hear, it's the early 1990s. Uh, Reebok and Nike are the two big sports brands in the U.S. Uh, Reebok actually was leading the market um, at that point. Nike had kind of, you know, grown and done really well. Air Jordan had come along. Uh, the whole team, apart from Phil Knight, who was really behind a lot of the success at Nike, and if you read Shoe Dog, which many people have, um, a lot of the characters all picked up and left and started working to uh, rebuild Adidas at that point. Adidas, um, you know, now is, you know, obviously the one of the leading brands in the world. But back then, um, you couldn't find it in stores in the U.S. unless you, you know, went to a big city and you were lucky to happen upon a footlocker that had some cool, you know, forums or, you know, superstars or top tens or dead stock sitting around. Um, in Europe, uh, they were plagued by bad product, bad colors. They were in, you know, leisure wear. They were in all kinds of different brown shoe categories. And um, essentially, yeah, exactly. So um, just bad, bad stuff. Um, and company essentially got blown up and restarted under the ownership of a French guy named Bernard Tapie. Uh, a lot of people call him the French Donald Trump. We'll leave it at that. But, um, you know, he engaged um, Rob, Peter and that whole team to help rebuild the brand. And both of us kind of landed there at this kind of formative time in the company's history, uh, which was an amazing place to be. And I think some of the lessons we learned and stories, you know, we were part of and products we all helped create really are what got the brand back and going again. So what was, the, you know, what was that like for you and your career and your creativity to be part of that whole? The thing is, you know, you mentioned Reebok and Nike now or leading the industry at that time. And it was really Adidas, which was sport before that. Right. And they lost their way. Um, you know, arrogance or, you know, whatever, 
um, being out of touch. But for many people, me and me, myself included, Adidas was sport. I mean, it was you have visions of the Olympics and you know, or any a world championship, um, World Cup, and 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 sport, and you thought of Adidas. So that's one thing. There was sort of a an inborn like, man, this I love this brand, um, but they've lost their way. But then you know, contemporary brands and and design, you know, that that uh, brands like Nike and Reebok were now you know about was attractive to us, right? Um, and so combining that juice, if you will, that vision, that 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 um, you know, drive from from Rob and Peter with this brand that we loved, and now suddenly this mashup is like, we're gonna get together and kick ass, like the best sports brand in the world and the most visionary people coming together. I wanna be a part of that, you know? I remember when I, w- when I was in Portland at Avia and I learned that uh, Rob and Peter, Sports Inc., had the Adidas gig, right? So if you read, you know, Shoe Dog or Swoosh and you know that those guys, um, Swoosh, is, Swoosh is another book that I would recommend people to read. Um, it's hard uh, to find. Is it? Yeah, it's hard to find. I remember reading the galleys and the proofs of it from Julie. Oh, my. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So it, when you know... Um, that like once they got on, so I'd gotten word, wind that they were on the Adidas gig or they'd gotten Adidas as a client and I actually knocked on their door. You know, part of my whole thing was like, I was just an eager beaver, right? Like um, I, you know, showed up at Sports Inc and, you know, Rob talked to me and sh- and Peter showed me, you know, the equipment book and I was like, I'm in. Um, uh, so that was it. It was like, that those two things coming together and then the idea of being a part of a mission which you know the leader the kind of leader that rob was um i mean you know dave like we would follow him anywhere (laughs) um and he was he was likable enough and humble enough and um you know irreverent enough um he was exactly kind of you know what we what we you know empowered us also um, as young people respected, you know, where energy could come from. He didn't know everything. And then that combined with Peter, who was just one of the most um, also irreverent, um, you know, clear in his vision um, leaders that was also very easy to follow. So it was just a, it was just a super magical time we all i think i mean you you know i think you you felt the same like we were on the ground level you know we had a lot to 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 fight against a lot to prove um and there was just this incredible energy and you know what's i mean where people that crew like where a lot of those people ended up is impressive as well you know you got yeah we're all part of a startup if you will or you know or rebuilding um of an old legend but it really was like being part of a startup and you know having been around a lot of big companies and big startups since then you know that energy that spirit of creativity and innovation you just can't find that um everywhere it's amazing and it wasn't easy as well you know i mean this is a you know a german company who who was quite traditional um and knew what they were doing, but also there was some newness that, you know, people like us brought in, you know. Um, the idea of making a, a, a shoe out of synthetic leather was a challenging thought, you know. 
you know, what, how could synthetic leather be better than real leather? Well, you know, it's lighter and it's, you know, you can engineer different qualities into it and so on. But that was not really, you know, the traditional thinking. So, yeah, it was startup and we had to sort of fight some of the, the, um, the barriers. Fine. Um, but it was unmistakable, the history there. I mean, you remember there was the design museum. Uh, sorry, the, um, the, the, the shoe museum at uh, corporate headquarters, which had, you know, Jesse Owens track spikes from the 36 Olympics. It had, you know, Franz Beckenbauer's shoes, Muhammad Ali's boxing shoes, all of these incredible, um, not just product, but historical. They had a role in history that, you know, I would go up there and just look at those shoes and, you know, sometimes could touch them and take them out. And, um, and they were real inspiration too at that time. So it was just a really magical time, you know, to be there. It was like walking through history in many ways. So I had a key to the museum because I had to give tours all the time. And as one of the, you know, few Americans that was there, if there was anyone from the States that would come over, um, you know, whether that was new kids on the block to David Hasselhoff to (laughs) coach K. Um, right. We always had to take care of them, show them the town, um, take them to dinner, show them the museum, do all those things. So I had a key. And what always amazed me was, um, you know, the right foot would be in a display case and then the left foot would just be in a box on the floor. The other half of Jesse Owens shoes on the ground, just in a box, you know, Ali's boots were on the ground, et cetera. Yeah. Just on the ground in a box, right collecting dust and they're you know they're world famous uh treasures if you will one of my favorite stories from those days was um when i started the first day i was there i got lost in the building um you know and remember the office at that point was people wore shirts and ties people could smoke in their offices right so this was a real real culture shift uh to what the company is right now Mm -hmm. and i remember turning a corner and walking straight into franz beckenbauer walking through the office and just, you know, it was one of those surreal moments that, okay, um, this is a whole different world and history lives in this place, but kind of using history to build on top of that. Um, what was out of all the stuff you worked on during your years at Adidas? Um, what were your favorite projects to work on? Um, really the, the equipment collection, which was that sort of inaugural representation of the new, Adidas was the equipment range, and I was brought in to work um, for the what was called the Advanced Product Group at the time, led by Jacques Chassin. Um, and his focus was, or the focus of the group was the equipment range, the advanced, you know, innovative uh, products. And um, yeah, the the, bas- the equipment basketball sock is one that I'm very proud of. Um, you know, and you know, you're like when your shoes are brought back, that's kind of a thing. So what I when I was, I left Adidas and then I worked, by the way, at Adidas on three separate occasions for a total of 12 years. So in my third, uh, when I went back and I worked out of Portland, they brought back the basketball sock that I had done, I don't know, 10 years prior. Um, but that was really exciting because, again, we were breaking new ground with the kind of product that we were doing for the Adidas brand um, or streetball. You know, that was another one that I worked on that was, uh, you know, but at that time, if you designed a shoe that sold a million pairs, that was pretty good then. Um, now that's kind of done regularly. But um, that product was amazing, though. I remember your designs for that, and it was it was just for me a work of art. I remember holding the shoe 
and I just couldn't let go of it and stop staring at it. And that was really a phenomenon for the brand to get into basketball and in a way that was um, authentic and real to the brand, but was kind of young and trendy around, you know, getting out outside and playing outdoor basketball, or as all the Germans called it, going to play streetball. <laughs> right. Well, what was really, you know, a fun, you know, challenging, but fun process was seeing how far you could push such a traditional brand, like, you know, design something that pushed boundaries and that you could still say was Adidas, you know, um, not an easy thing to do. And that was, you know, that was one of them. Like it, it, it broke ground, but it, you could still put it on the table and look at it or on the shelf and say, yeah, this is an Adidas product. So I was very proud of that. I designed, you know, the, the, the first tubular, tubular running shoe, which was a, a shoe that had pneumatic chambers on the bottom with an onboard pump that you could, you know, change the, the cushioning and it was $200 like, and it made the cover of USA today, like, you know, kind of crazy. Um, but, but yeah, those are the things, the equipment products were pretty much, I was most proud of. Yeah. And you also designed for Kobe back before Kobe became a Nike athlete. He was with Adidas for quite some time. Yeah, that was in my, my third stint at Adidas in Portland. And by that time, you know, the brand had just evolved so far from when we first you know got on board um something to be proud of you know how the brand grew and you know eventually had a guy like kobe you know as a player and um you know it was a it was a difficult time kobe was important to adidas and the the first kobe was well let's see what was it maybe the second kobe was a huge hit the third, this, the third one, not so much. And then I was on assigned to the fourth Kobe. And, you know, it was this partnership. It was a formula that Peter had, had created, which was car design out of Los Angeles, um, Adidas, the brand, because, you know, Kobe's a player and uh, played for the Lakers. So essentially the Audi designers, the car designers, let's say, uh, ideated the product, built a model for the shoe, and it was my job to translate it into a real a shoe. And, um, yeah, I did that job, um, you know, met with Kobe, showed him designs. You know, it was when I, when at that time I met with him, and he, one of the things he said was that there's only two players in the league. It was him and Allen Iverson at the time. Um, that was how he saw things. Um and uh, the shoe that I designed for him, he had never ended up wearing because by that time he had gone to Nike. So um, designed for him, but never got him on, never got him on court. So, but it was a, you know, it was a great experience. What was Kobe like? Was he it was kind of pre-Mamba days, if you will, when he was really um, an enigma to a lot of people around the game? They were trying to figure out who he was. He was kind of quiet and reclusive, right? And... Um, hadn't really ascended to the heights that he eventually attained. Mm -hmm. I mean, my exposure, truth be told, my exposure was very minimal. It was, you know, one meeting, we sat for a couple hours and talked about product. So, you know, I can only speak about my impressions. I think probably he was trying to figure out, you know, who he was at that time, um, who he should listen to. You know, he had obviously had some success, but I think knew or maybe imagined he could be better or do better. And I think at that by that time, you know, Nike had gotten in his ear and he was influenced by that. You know, um, I remember I met with him and V, his wife, 
and his dog Gucci <laughs> was at the meeting too. Um, and um, yeah, it was, you know, again, it was a short, short exposure, um, an amazing experience. You know, one like, uh, I had some cool assignments like that. I mean, you mentioned Coach K before, um, early on, when I was looking to design basketball shoes for Adidas, I went to, uh, to Duke and sat in, in Coach K's office and talked to him about shoes and his program and what he was, you know, what he uh, was after for his players. Um, you know, I, I designed shoes for Steffi Groff, which was a thrill, you know, I never met her. Um, I watched her practice. Um, and, uh, but seeing the shoes that I designed, seeing her play in them and, you know, the championship tournaments that she played in throughout the world, that was a thrill. Um, so all, all in all, like that part of the business or that part of design was, is amazing. Like the users, right. The user research was pretty cool. Yeah, and having to listen to elite athletes and what they want, and what they need, and understand how to translate that into something yeah. that's for the you know regular consumer, if you will. Exactly, and understanding what you know, it's a player typically, in my experience, can't tell you what they really want. So you have to listen, oftentimes, to what they don't say, you know, and interpret that. You know, it's like in jazz, you know, the notes that that aren't heard are just as important, you know. Um, and uh, you kind of have to listen in a certain way to these guys. And understand how they think and how they see things. Again, coming back to that empathy skill. Exactly. Yep. Mm -hmm. So most recently, you've been the head of global innovation at Puma. How did you end up there? Um, yeah. So let's see. I Once I left Adidas <clears throat> um, in Portland, I was had a short stint at Crocs. I was the global creative director at Crocs. I took the opportunity. They had a really interesting way of making shoes and um, got my attention. Um, and I worked there for a couple of years. And then I got a call um, from, a, a again, a recruiter. And he said, I have an opportunity, but it would require relocation to, to Europe. And the company does um, uh, product in motorcycling and motorsports. <laughs> <laughs> which you know me dave like my i'm a i'm a motorcycle um i don't know what you'd call it fanatic um you know a ducatisti i was a ducatisti you know builder racer rider of motorcycles and so puma at the time um actually had a partnership with ducati and a line of you know motorcycle boots and um that got my attention as well but that was a job for a head of um, footwear design in Germany. And I, you know, I took that job in 2010 and there was an early, you know, at that time where Puma was at was recovering. They had a really good run in the nineties, um, doing what we kind of now know today as sports style, which was athletic silhouettes more for more fashion, uh, wear and, um, new designs. But they were sort of, you know, that at that time, every other brand figured out how to do that pretty well, too. Um, so they lost a little bit of their their success. Um, so we had some rebounding to do. Um, and part of that conversation was innovation. And by then I had known quite a bit about innovation. So I got into that conversation pretty quickly. And then before you know it, you know, we're, we're needing to revitalize the innovation team. And I migrated over as head of innovation design um and then uh we had a new um 
our new our C, our present CEO or the Puma CEO now Bjorn Gulden, um, he had uh, innovation reporting to him, or he wanted innovation to be to report to him, and um, you know I was asked um, to take on that um, position, which is global head of innovation, or sorry, global director of innovation. Um, and that was in 2000, so about five years ago, I took that job, and that's what I've been doing until 31st of August. So I've been away for a couple of weeks now. There you go. So innovation is such a, an overused word out in the world, um, yet it's really what drives our economy right now. And some companies are great at it. Some companies are good at it. Some companies are terrible at it. Um, and the meaning of innovation in every company is very different, I've found. What did it mean at Puma? How did the company define it? How did the company see innovation? And what was the role it took in the culture of the company? Well, the meaning of innovation doesn't only change from company to company. It changes from person to person within a company. So you talk to 10 pe different people about what innovation is, or design, by the way, as well, what is design, and you get 10 different opinions. Um, you know, And let's say the spectrum it, it might fall, the, the general spectrum of the conversation is um, innovation with a capital I, which is really, you know, breaking boundaries and doing things differently, um, bringing newness, and with a small I is, you know, a different flavor that, you know, as long as it ticks a few boxes, then we're okay. Um, and, you know, in an industry where um, bringing newness very quickly, the cycle of in, of newness in the sports industry, in particular footwear, you know, you can, it's about every three weeks, you know, something new has to be on the market. So then the question becomes, okay, what can you really invest in? Um, so at Puma, it was, it was a, it was a moving target, right? Um, I, what I wanted innovation to be was to really be, um, bring newness. And when I say newness, if you bring something new to the market or to an industry, to a business, it's challenging in one of several ways. It's either, you know, too expensive or doesn't follow our sourcing um, plans or it's um, is a new marketing a retail model or, you know, needs to message like all these things need to shift in some way. By definition, you're outside the system. Exactly. And so, you know, that's what I stood for, right? Is that um, looking for the opportunities that actually were authentic and did bring newness and tried to mitigate or, or eliminate all of those barriers, right? Because you're within an organization, there's a lot of stakeholders who need to buy in. Um, and that was what we got pretty good at. So um, yeah, innovation at Puma, um, it, again, it varied. In some ways it was just about, let's bring something that we can sell. You know, so, so I want to dig into that idea of what you talked about there a moment ago, which is um, if I were to summarize that innovation isn't just about creativity and coming up with, you know, not what's new and what's next. So much of it is about um, getting things through a company's system. That's it's right. about persuasion. It's about empathy. It's about all those skills you learned in school. And it's, it's as much about getting kind of the ingenuity that you have that might be trapped inside of a company and finding a way to free it and let it grow and let it bloom. Yeah. 
No, that's absolutely right. The 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 um, you know one of the one of the things I call myself or or what I did for a project was like chief evangelist, right? Because it's you need to bring it through the organization, get people comfortable with it, um, you know, prove to them that it does what you say it does, show them the cost, you know, the sourcing, planning, all of that. So um, it requires, you know, a lot of different hats to be worn, empathy for each one of them, or a different set of, you know, empathy guidelines for each one. Um, and you're right, it's not, uh, you know, something can be innovative in how you deliver it, you know, or the experience that it is, not just the thing or the materials that it's made of. Do you know what I mean? So, uh, yeah. So it's creativity and culture. Yes, understand, you know, understanding the culture it needs to fit your brand and the consumer and then the culture within the within the company as well. Um, you know, we were pretty good. Uh, Puma is a, you know, it's a smaller company than some of the bigger sports brand, right? We have, you know, a fraction of the resources. And so we had to be very um, efficient and creative and adept um, and that made it allowed us to be fast as well, you know, which kind of set us apart or um, allowed us to get things through um, as well. But the, you know, the, the, the competition has much more resources. And so that was also, you know, that could be a source of frustration too. So as you kind of traveled the world and saw a lot of different things in and around the world of innovation and design, it really opened your eyes again, even more so to, new things um, and new inspiration, particularly around kind of humanistic design, right? Mm -hmm. That's something you've talked about quite a lot recently. Can you explain a little bit about what that means and how it's different from kind of the design you were trained in? Sure. You know, this last, this year, you know, um, uh, at the onset of COVID, it kind of put everybody sort of, you know, everyone's heads spinning, including mine. And, you know, once it stops spinning, you start to think of, okay, what is, you know, why are we here? What are we doing? Um, that was one point, COVID. And then, um, you know, the onset of, of the murder of George Floyd and, and Black Lives Matter and sort of all of, you know, that that brought to, to my doorstep here in Germany, right? There were demonstrations here. Um, and, you know, something that I came across a few years ago, which is the Copenhagen letter, which was the call for design, you know, designers to use their power to, to solve, uh, problems of humanity. Um, a combination of those things in recent months has really gotten me to think, well, a, what have I been doing? And my career in the sports industry has been fantastic. Um, it's afforded me some great experiences and a lifestyle. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, you could say we're, we're doing sneakers and T-shirts and, um, you know, again, afforded me my career. But there are other things that I felt that, I, that struck me that I want to do for the world and really think more in terms of humanity and not just commerce. Um, and so, you know, the idea of humanistic design is a challenge that I'm putting on myself to put you know, human, humanity and human values at the center of design. And that can be things, products, or it can be experiences, or it can be systems. Um, 
and that it does require, you know, we go back to this, the, the idea of empathy, like real empathy, um, really understanding humans um, and what's important to humanity and to the environment is where I'm at right now. And, you know, the things that I'm shaping up now and the things I want to do in the future. So system design is something that's fascinating there, obviously, not just products and, mark, you know, for users, but the idea of looking at human values, whether that's sustainability, um, mobility, um, other systems like that. But one of the things I heard you recently give a talk where you broke down um, racism as a design system. Yeah, I mean, if you it was very really interesting because. A, a famous design critic, Ralph Kaplan, when asked, you know, the best design of the era, what is it? And he called out the sit-in. Um, for those listeners who don't know what, you know, sit-ins emerged, you know, or, or it's a people who sit and um, to occupy a space and they don't leave that space until their demands are met. And that was a methodology or a practice that was used um, to counter the, you know, Jim Crow laws in the U.S. in the 60s, part of the civil rights movement. Um, you know, you can liken it to experience design today, right? So I thought that was really, really interesting, um, his take on, on a good design. And it got me thinking, well, if the sit-in was a design, um, what was the sit-in actually countering or trying to to um, to, to what problem was it trying to solve and that and and it was racism or let's say systemic racism um, in the US and if that's true then how did racism you know come to being and the more I looked at it to me it, it was a design as well you know an effective design I have to say how do you undesign a system like that um, you know, I, I don't, I think first you have to understand it. So, you know, that journey of considering, um, instit let's say institutionalized racism, systemic racism in the U S and the tools, the design tools that were used, um, started with, you know, in, in my view started, for example, with lynchings, um, and there were, you know, legislated design tools like, you know, again, Jim Crow laws, um, uh, uh, you know, separate but equal laws, um, um, you know, the things that were institutionalized to, to shape, you know, racist environment in America. And then there were the open source things like lynchings or like, you know, ignoring laws or, um, you know, racial violence. Um, those are sort of the open source tools. So I think the, f the first thing is, is to understand that and to, see how um, this system was designed and how it, um, the effects that it had in order to go back and look at how do we undo it. So um, the beginning of racism in America was actually the opposite of humanistic design, which is we had to, or the country had to strip people of their humanity um, in order for them to accept how black people were treated in America. And um, Again, understanding that, once you understand that, then you can start to say, okay, how do we design for humanity to promote humanity in people, you know? And that's where empathy comes into play. And um, I believe that 
you know, again, in this in this sort of time we're in, which is about um, Black Lives Matter and how can we, um, you know, improve race relations and race matters in the U.S. And again, I think that anybody can address it. You don't have to be, you know, have the empathy of a black or be a black person to, you know, to redesign or bring new designs that are are anti-racist. You know, anybody can play that role. So. The whole BLM, Black Lives Matter movement that's been going on um, and really, you know, crested this year, um, thankfully, has been eye-opening for so many people and just even myself looking at it and trying to understand privilege, uh, which I think is part of um, the system that you talked about there and understanding, you know, the privilege that I've had um, where, you know, doors would open for me if I worked hard enough, knocked on them hard enough, kicked them, you know, I didn't, they weren't uh, barricaded shut to me um, no matter what. And to me, that's something I never fully understood or appreciated um, until recently. And I think as you talk about the system, um, you know, that's really just the tip of the iceberg and it goes so deep um, and is all pervasive. And I think, you know, how do we change that isn't, you know, an overnight thing, but I think your approach of rethinking systems entirely and approaching them differently and, you know, taking some of the tools out, but replacing them with new and better ones is something that, you know, really has a lot of potential and a lot mm -hmm. of positive future for your. Well, I think also just like looking to the depth, um, every problem that people are, that, you know, your listeners are out there trying to solve, um, just understand or acknowledge that there, that there's likely more depth to it. Um, and that you can give attention to, you know, what's the knock on effect of what you're doing um, to other people or other, you know, um, to other uh, communities, for example. You know, I, there's a story that I talked about in that same presentation, which is around the notion of facial recognition. And there was a story coming out of Detroit where a man was, there was a, a, a jewelry store was burglarized or something. They had they used facial recognition from the camera footage to identify a suspect. And the suspect, you know, somebody showed up, um, a black person, and, you know, he was arrested, site, you know, brought, went to his home, arrested him, didn't ask any questions really um, in front of his family and kids, brought him down to the station, started questioning him then, um, and produced this photograph and said, you know, I suppose this isn't you. And in fact, it wasn't him, right? So the facial recognition software had gone wrong, okay? So what does that mean? Um, that there was a design flaw. And the truth is that um, facial recognition software does have issues with people of color. You know, uh, research shows that. And so how could that, like, what's the, what's the, why does that happen, okay? Now, I also, after that, I read that story. There was an article in the MIT Design or MIT Technology Review that raised the issue. Um, facial recognition is problematic when it comes to color. And the answer was, well, now it's time for legislators to really make sure that, you know, they, they you know, correct this. It's like, no, let's get this, the design right. Okay. Now, one way to do that, you know, I, I think that, I, look, I'm not, I can't, prove this or it's, you know, it's not scientific, but 
it's likely that, that the lack of empathy might play a role in software design these days, right? So um, why? Because maybe one reason could be there are not enough uh, designers of color in the tech industry. Could be. Um, but but it doesn't mean now that we have to hire, you know, black designers. Anybody who's designing can, should really look into their empathy meter or their empathy, you know, engine or how do they get to really bringing in understanding different input so that they can do their their job better so so it's putting that on the you know high on the list of considerations is right really thinking through those things and you know clearly in those facial recognition systems but in so many other systems we have across our society culture um and the way things work or don't work as the case may be there's so many blind spots like that yeah and you know, sorry, as a designer, like we were, again, we were taught, right? So if you're, if you're going to design new hospital equipment and you've never done it, you're going to go to a hospital and you're going to observe the people who use the equipment and, and, you know, so that you can get to an authentic solution. Um, that's harder these days when it comes to culture, maybe, but it's even more important these days, right? It is about, you know, stepping into the spaces and places of others, Right. To, so that you understanding that you know what you're designing the effect it's going to have on all manner of people it's just you know doing more of that work that traditional work so as you talk about humanistic design um, you know designers are taught to be human-centered and think human-centered um, but humanistic really means you're thinking about not just the people um, or the user which is a word I hate but um, the people um, but you're also thinking about the planet, you're thinking about the place that they are, and you're thinking of the purpose of um, the company or the purpose of what you're doing. That's right. You know, um, like I just got through telling you I'm a motorcycle, you know, aficionado or freak, which means I have five motorcycles in my garage and they all, you know, use fuel. And that's not cool. <laughs> um, so, you know, my latest attention has gone to electric, you know, vehicles. Um and, you know, with the idea of supporting and inspiring people um, to, you know, get quicker to zero emissions, like, and, and it starts with me, right? I don't have it all figured out, but I know that there are, um, that there are things that, that I can do um, and everyone, you know, it's cliche, but everybody can play a role in bettering the planet. Um, and yes, it is about not just things and people, but the environment. I know and you know that, for example, our industry, you know, when obviously, you know, sports shoes are made in Asia, right? Many of them, right? So when the factory shut down in COVID, air quality got markedly better. Doesn't that tell us something? Shouldn't that tell us something? Yes, you know, it's an industry that needs to be fed or, you know, we want to get back to, to, um, producing as many shoes as we were, we were before, or do we, or should we, you know, that's really, that's thinking about, you know, you know, obviously not just people, but environment and then the positive effects that we can have if we're mindful of that. So, and that same, you know, creativity and culture, um, applied to commerce, you know, again, that you talked about in innovation, it's not just the ideas and the solutions, but it's, um, persuading people that are stakeholders that have something to potentially lose or gain that this is in their best interests or in their company's best interests or in their shareholders, best interests or in their yeah. own, you know, personal best interests. 
Look, I, yes, and I, you know, I hope that, um, you know, that I'm I'm not the only one who's been reflective during COVID times. That yes, in fact, the people who are in leadership positions who can actually make decisions about you know industry and commerce um, initiatives that you know they they take a step back and really you know be mindful of what what their role can can be in influencing a change um, you know and the, because the more you know one of the challenges for example doing working on sustainable product right in a company like Puma innovation it's costly okay um, and things are improving like things are getting better in terms of the cost of of um, let's say sustainable materials why because consumers want it more and and retailers want it more and okay so let's build on that like the more responsibility well the more interest and then responsibility individuals show increase the demand i mean you can probably talk about it in much more detail in terms of how markets and businesses you know develop but increasing demand and pressure um, and that alongside i was really uplifted to learn that for example included in germany's recovery funds or recovery you know support for industry will be you know green deal initiatives and for the eu right so good there's going to be incentive i think those things have to come together um to really foster change and push change and that people really commit um that it's not a feel-good thing that it's an essential thing so i'm i'm hopeful of that it's amazing i can't wait to see all the things that you do Hey, this is Dave Kniss, the host and creator of the Agents of Innovation podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode, and please reach out if I can help you. You can get me at dk at agentsofinnovation.dk. Again, dk at agentsofinnovation.dk. Thanks again for listening.